It's wonderful to see all of you this morning. I invite you to turn in God's word to Ezra chapter 9, uh, verse 1. Uh, we will be reading selectively through chapter 9 and chapter 10. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. If you can hear me well, nod your head that yes, this is in fact the case. Good. All right. We've had some technical difficulties as of late, and so I wanted to confirm that I can be heard. Ezra 9, verse 1. This is God's word. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquity, iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now... For a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just." For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. 
While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, so they took the oath. Now jump forward to verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asael, and Jeziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this. And Mishalom and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of the father's houses, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And in this final section of chapter 10, we have a list of every single person who is guilty of intermarrying with the pagan neighbors. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you are holy. We confess that you dwell in unapproachable light, that you are good through and through, and there is no darkness in you. Father, it is our desire to be holy like you are holy, separate from the defilement and corruption of this world, and more and more like you. We desire to order our lives not in accordance with the rebellious values of this corrupt society, but in accordance with the principles of your word. We long for this and pray that through the preaching of the word and the work of your spirit, you would accomplish this more and more in our lives. We confess, however, that often we fall short of being a holy people, a distinct people. Uh, too often we live like those around us who don't know you. Too often we live, Lord, like this life is... Uh, the only life there is. We forget about the world to come. We become preoccupied with accumulating and the pleasures of this life. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask for your forgiveness and grace to lead lives that are honoring to you and a joy to us. If, Heavenly Father, there are 
pockets of rebellion in our hearts or lives that we need to be made aware of. We pray that you would use your word this morning to expose those pockets of rebellion and bring us to repentance. Uh, We ask that you would work mightily in our midst and grant us understanding, faith, and submission to your word this morning. Amen. There are undoubtedly many things that make life difficult, but one of them is this very human uh, inability to learn from our mistakes. You make a mistake, you act foolishly, and experience the pain of your foolishness, and of course, then you act foolishly again and experience the pain of your foolishness, and so it goes. It's very hard, even after you've experienced misery, to course correct, isn't it? We've experienced that in our lives, and certainly we see that again and again with Israel. In her long history, there is a pattern of covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord. And God's judgment falls upon his wayward people again and again. And it finally culminates in in this climactic act of judgment, exile. God's people are taken off uh, into captivity away from the land because of their lack of faithfulness to him. But as we've seen, uh, in in the mercy of God, he's been bringing his people back to the land bit by bit. I mean, they're a shell of their former self, but God's grace has been operative in their community. The temple is rebuilt, and Israel is beginning to be uh, a people again. And what do they do? A short time after coming back to the land, they go back to the same covenant unfaithfulness. We see uh, some of their leaders intermarrying with the the women of the land, their neighbors, their non-Jewish women, uh, and, and, and threatening the purity of God's people. Once again, they are drifting towards idolatry. And that's the context for the passage we looked at today, this grave act of rebellion against a gracious God who is bringing his people back into the land. As we look at this passage this morning, I want you to note three things. First, one is to see the temptation to assimilate. Second, the need to confess our sins. And third, the need to at times, for painful repentance. So Ezra, as we saw last week, is a Bible scholar, well acquainted with the law, and he leaves Babylon to come back to the motherland, to Jerusalem, Judea, for the purpose of teaching the law of God to the people of God. And everything seems to be going well until four months after his arrival, he gets this bad news from some of the officials of the people. Ezra, we've got to tell you something. Some of the people, including some of the priests and Levites and some of our leaders, they're beginning to marry again uh, with with our non-Jewish neighbors, our pagan neighbors. Now, I want you to be very clear about the issue here. The issue is not uh, ethnic purity or racial purity. That's not the issue. Uh, The issue is religious purity. You can see that very clearly in verse 1. Uh, where we are told that they haven't separated themselves from the peoples of their lands with their abominations. That's the language of moral corruption and idolatry. That's the issue. By marrying these non-Jewish women, the leaders of Israel are opening the door to the worship of other gods. They are opening the door to defiling themselves and uh, undermining their commitment as a separate people holy to the Lord. That's what's at issue here. It's, uh, if you look at Israel's history, you'll note that there isn't an absolute prohibition against marrying outsiders. 
You think, for example, of Boaz, who's a very pious Jew, and he marries a Moabite, an outsider, uh, named Ruth. She's the great-grandmother of King David. And uh, that union is viewed very positively in Scripture. And the reason for it, and here's the essential difference between Ruth and these women, the reason for it is Ruth converted. Ruth pledged allegiance to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, and that's why it was acceptable. That's what's at issue, religious purity. We need to understand that Israel is called to be a holy nation. Uh, you see that language of holiness in verse 2. Uh, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. That idea of holiness means separateness. God has claimed Israel to belong to him. He has pulled her out from the corruption of the world, and she is called to reflect his holy and pure character, to be separate from the nations. And this act of intermarrying with the pagans threatens their identity as a holy people. It threatens to undermine their distinctive status. They are, they are assimilating to the ways of their pagan neighbors. That's what's at stake. And we need to understand that that continues to be a temptation for God's people. Uh, we are a holy people unto God. Peter makes this very clear. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God has taken us from the corruption and defilement of the world, and he has claimed us as his own. And he has called us to reflect his character to the world. He has called us to be distinct in every aspect of life. Our speech should be distinctive. Our behavior, our thinking, our attitudes, our marriages, the way we use our time and money, our priorities should be holy and should reflect the character of God. That's our calling as his people. But of course, the temptation for us, as for them, is to live uh, in a way that contradicts that calling. It, the temptation is to assimilate to the values and priorities of this world rather than the values and priorities of God's word. We can assimilate to patterns of thought in the surrounding culture. We, assimilation can happen at the level of ideas, uh, values that we embrace. For example, we live in a world that's very religiously pluralistic. There are a lot of options out there. Um, we come into contact with all sorts of spiritualities and all sorts of different religions. And the sophisticated position in our world is that you need to be broad-minded. There, there isn't one true path that leads to God. All of these different religions have a, a fragment of the truth, perhaps. And we need to affirm them all as being good and helpful. That's sort of the spirit of the age. But as Christians, we want to say no. There's something inherently exclusivistic about Christianity. There is exactly one way to God, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's the path to God, and absolutely every other religion and spirituality is a dead end that will separate you from God rather than bringing you to God. And so for us to be faithful, we have to embrace that. We have to embrace the opposition that comes from saying there is only one way uh, to access God, and that's through Jesus. We are to be distinct in our thinking, even if we are at times accused of being bigots and narrow-minded. We ought to be holy in our thinking. We ought to uh, not assimilate in our living, in the way that we behave. Take, for example, parenting. Uh, one characteristic of modern parenting is that many parents are heavily invested in their children and not invested enough. I know it's a paradox. 
But many parents are prepared to work hard, make money, and give their kids a good education. Uh, they are prepared to sacrifice weekends to go uh, watch their child play sports, play football, play basketball. They're prepared, prepared to make all of these sacrifices for their child. But they're frequently not prepared to sit down and engage in the formation of that child. This is right. This is wrong. Here's what's wise. Here's what's foolish. That kind of intentional formation of a person is conspicuously lacking in many families. And Christians often mimic those wrong-headed priorities. Uh, we spend money to give them a good education. We have them in all kinds of activities. But we never pray with them. We never read scripture with them. We never engage them in conversation about things that matter. Our priorities are worldly and sub-biblical, if that's the pattern we're following. Uh, the Christian dinner table should be marked by lively conversation about everything under the sun. There should be long conversations about education, politics, movies, romance, love, life. All of that is fair game, and there needs to be intentionality about the formation of children. Parents, are you doing that? Are you prioritizing things biblically or according to the values of the world? So our living, our lifestyle can assimilate to the world around us. And finally, our attitudes can assimilate to the attitudes of the world around us. Uh, one thing that we see in contemporary society is this preoccupation with privilege. Those people have pri privilege. I don't have privilege. We need to redistribute privilege so we all have privilege. right? And what that attitude does is it whips up envy, dissatisfaction, uh, a desire to have something that uh, someone else has, rather than contentment and gratitude. In such a culture, Christians should be distinct and known for their gratitude and contentment. We shouldn't be amazed by what that other guy has that I don't have. We should be amazed that we have anything. We have no claims on God, no claims on his mercy, and yet God has been pleased to bestow every conceivable blessing upon us through Jesus Christ. And the appropriate response is not incessant grumbling about what I don't have and the other guy has. The appropriate response is thanksgiving. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Are you fundamentally content and grateful, or always frustrated by what you don't have and the other guy has? To be holy is to have a holy attitude, a distinctive attitude as well. So how can we retain our distinctiveness in the world? Well, Paul tells us very clearly, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind. Your mind. The clean sea breeze of Holy Scripture needs to be constantly blowing through our minds, transforming our thinking and our desires. And as that happens day by day, and our minds are transformed and conformed to God's will, we will have the ability to spot the discrepancies between God's will and what the world is saying and live according to his will. Secondly, pay attention to your companions. Uh, we get, as Christians, that we need to be developing relationships with people for the sake of influencing them and nudging them towards Jesus Christ. But understand the relationship is not one-sided. We are seeking to influence, but we are many times being influenced as well. 
And we need to be aware of the people that are in our lives, the people that we are spending our time with, and we need to ask ourselves, how is their lifestyle and their attitude shaping me? And of course, nobody perhaps influences us more than our spouses. It's part of the problem here. They need to break off these marriages to pagan women uh, because of the influence that they will have. Uh, God's will for them then, and his will for us now, is clear. Marry in the household of faith. That is, marry another Christian. If you're at a, if you're at a stage of life where you're looking to get married, um, you know, obviously that requires a lot of wisdom and you need to look for a variety of different things. But most fundamentally, are they a Christian? Do they have the same basic allegiance to Jesus Christ that you have? And if yes, you can talk. You can go forward. Uh, those of you who may be in a marriage where you are, to use the language of Scripture, unequally yoked, I just want to encourage you by reminding you that Jesus loves you. He hasn't forsaken you. And he is providing grace to you in that situation for you to live a life that's honoring to him. So don't lose heart. Seek to glorify God even in that uh, un- not ideal situation. But for those of you who are looking, look to marry somebody who shares your faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the news. Ezra, this terrible thing has happened. The holiness of God's people is being threatened. And notice Ezra's response. There is this heartfelt confession of sin in prayer, but even before that, there is this violent reaction. He rips out his beard, he rips out the hair on his head, he tears his garments, and initially he doesn't even pray, he just sits there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Have you experienced that? We are so overwhelmed and miserable, you don't even know where to go from there. You simply sit there, stare, appalled. Then at the time of the evening sacrifice, he gets down on his knees, spreads out his hands to the Lord, and he prays this emotionally charged prayer. I want you to notice three things about it. Number one, notice how Ezra identifies with the people of God. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Uh, Ezra doesn't say, oh, those sinners over there. Uh, I'm glad that I didn't contaminate myself. It's not those people over there and me over here. No, it's true, Ezra didn't sin. He didn't intermarry uh, with the pagans. Nevertheless, he understood that he was a member of the one people of God. And when there is sin in the body, uh, everybody's affected. The whole community is affected. He's affected. God doesn't just deal with us as individuals. He deals with us as communities. And so this is not just a problem for those people over there. This is a problem for all of us. And so you see this solidarity, this identification with God's people. Ezra is in anguish that the people he loves are once again forsaking God and being disloyal to his covenant. So he's asking God for forgiveness, for mercy, for restoration, and he's pouring out his heart to God. Is that how you pray for CBC? Do you love your local church? Do you identify with its spiritual well-being such that when it's going astray, struggling in some way, your heart is broken, and you pour out your heart before God and ask, Lord, restore the church that I love. Forgive us for our sins and act to put things right. Do you have that same sense of solidarity with the people of God? Most, most of us, I think, are very individualistic in our understanding of the Christian life. 
If things are going well with me, then all is good. Never mind that the church is struggling with error, struggling with all kinds of division and problems. I'm doing well, praise God. Right? That's the way most people think. But that's, not, that's a sub-biblical spirituality. God wants us to care, not just about ourselves, but about the people of God. And when they're not doing well, we ought to grieve and petition him. And when they are doing well, we ought to rejoice. These are our people. These are the people of God. And there should be a sense of unity with them. Uh, Derek Thomas is a Presbyterian pastor, uh, relatively prominent. Uh, He notes, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we confess not only our individual sins, but especially the corporate sins of the church. What are the prevailing sins of your church? It's a rhetorical question, incidentally. Uh, what, what, are the, what are the prevailing sins of your church? Pride, hypocrisy, envy, greed. These are the kinds of sins that require corporate confession. As a general rule, the Holy Spirit does not come in his reviving power until the church confesses its sins as a church. He's saying that spiritual renewal often happens when the people of God come together, not just confessing their private sins, but their sins as a community and asking the Lord to revive them and bring healing through the Spirit of God. That should be our heart as God's people. Wherever, in whatever community he has put us, we need to identify and work for the well-being of that community. There's a, an intriguing account in the book of Isaiah of King Hezekiah, one of Israel's kings. And there comes a moment where Isaiah, the prophet of God, comes to Hezekiah and he says, you're going to die, put your affairs in order. That's what God has said. You're done. Now King Hezekiah turns to the Lord. He weeps bitterly and he asks God for mercy to reverse this verdict. And God does. Gives him another 15 years of life. God has mercy on him. Now, in the very next chapter, chapter 39, uh, Hezekiah is informed by the prophet Isaiah that after he dies, Jerusalem will be plundered by her enemies and his sons will be taken off into captivity. And his response to that is this. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Notice the difference in response. You're going to die. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Your people are going to be carted off into exile, and God's judgment is coming. That's all right. It'll happen after I die. That's how we often are. We're more like Hezekiah than Ezra. Ezra's weeping for the people of God. We, as long as I can carve out a little peace and quiet in this life, it's okay. God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing with the next generation. Uh, ask yourself, is he, uh, are we rather, more like Hezekiah or like Ezra? Do we identify with God's people and petition him on their behalf, or is it just about me? Second thing to notice, responding to God's kindness with sin is unspeakably horrible. That's the emotional flavor of this passage. Horror. Ezra is appalled. He tears out his hair. Even the opening verse, he says, I I can't even look to heaven. I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for iniquities have risen higher than our heads, for guilt has mounted up to the heavens. The thought here is that their forefathers have added guilt upon guilt and sin upon sin before God, and they have continued in that tradition. And their guilt is growing and growing before God. He says, I can't even turn to you, God. I'm appalled. Why? The answer in terms of his prayer 
is that they have been given so much mercy and grace from God. What's happened in Ezra so far? God has come to his people who languished in exile, and he has been gently bringing them back to the land. He's enabled them to build the temple. He's enabling them to come home. God has shown them mercy. And the fact that they have responded with covenant violation shows their ingratitude. That's the emphasis here in verse 8. Ezra catalogs the mercies of God. For a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. God has spared us. He's brought us back to the land. Notice this imagery. Uh, He has worked to brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in uh, in our slavery. Isn't that a beautiful expression? We were languishing, but God in his kindness showed up to brighten our lives, our eyes, to revive us. This is not a full restoration. They're still under the thumb of the Persian Empire. But God is showing mercy to his people even in their lowly state. There's that beautiful uh, affirmation in verse 9. Our God has not forsaken us in slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. Uh, It's almost as if God has gone with them off into captivity. He's been with them in bondage and slavery, and he is bringing them back out. And all of this because he is a gracious God. But how has Israel responded? How have they responded to the mercies of God? With disloyalty, with ingratitude, with contempt for his goodness. And so Ezra says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. What we see is is the fact that it's unspeakably horrible and wicked to receive the mercies of God and then to respond with ingratitude and rebellion. Sin is bad enough, as it is. But to sin after God has shown you patience and mercy, after he has drenched you with his goodness, for you to persist in rebellion is appalling. Now consider the mercy that we've received. Those returned exiles receive mercy from the Lord. But consider the mercy we, we have received from the hand of God. God worked to turn the hearts of kings to bring them back to their land. But God has sent us the ultimate king, king, his son Jesus, who serves us not simply by making a decree, but by shedding his blood for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. Nothing less then the blood of the Son of God was spilled for our redemption. God was prepared to give even his Son to bring us back from the ultimate exile, which is separation from his presence. Jesus loved us, and he gave himself for us. Therefore, how much more hideous, wrong, appalling, is it for us to persist in our rebellion against the Lord when we have experienced such mercy? Peter writes, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Nothing less than the life of the perfect Son of God was given to redeem us. Our response should be astonishment. How is that possible that God would do such a thing for me and a life of glad obedience to him? Final thing to notice. Ezra comes to the end of his prayer and we might expect him at the end of the prayer to say, God, forgive us. But here's what he says. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. 
for we are left for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today behold we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this interestingly he doesn't ask for forgiveness no it's not that Ezra doesn't believe in forgiveness he does but he's so appalled by the sin of the people that all he can say is god we are before you in our sin there's nothing to say you are our only hope what Ezra's attitude shows us is man's utter inability to wipe away his own sin and his own guilt. No matter how hard we scrub, we can't take away our defilement and guilt in the sight of God. The only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. Jesus can make us clean. We can't make ourselves clean. As the stanza from the, well, that wonderful classic hymn, Rock of Ages, puts it, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. It's important for us to recognize that because the very human tendency, the fatal tendency, is for us to trust in ourselves, in our own moral performance and goodness. I'm seeking to be a good person. Try to, people, try to treat people the right way, surely God will accept me. He'll see that what I did was more or less right and all is well. And that's the path to everlasting ruin. The first step in a right relationship with God is recognizing our spiritual poverty. I'm guilty before him, and I can't do anything to change that fact. But God, through his son, has acted that my guilt might be taken away. Trust in Jesus, not in yourself. So after he pours out his heart in this prayer, we find men, women, and children uh, gathering around Ezra. And they're also weeping with him. And Shechaniah comes to him and says, hey, I have an idea. There's still hope for Israel. Why don't we commit to parting ways with the pagan women and even the offspring that have come from them? Notice it's not in the first instance Ezra's idea. It's Shechaniah's idea. Ezra endorses it, but it doesn't come from him. I think what's intriguing about this passage is Ezra doesn't do much. He doesn't have a plan for how to fix this. What he does is he grieves publicly and cries out to God. And his zeal for the Lord seems to do, cause all the other pieces to fall into place. People start coming alongside of him and praying with him. And crying out to God, and Shechaniah has this idea that Ezra will get behind to sever the relationship with the pagan wives. But, but what we see is how contagious a wholehearted commitment to God is. Where there is a genuine zeal for God, it proves to be infectious. Other people take note and begin to follow our lead. Is it possible that one of the reasons we're not more effective in influencing other people having an impact for Jesus is because of our half-heartedness or emotional distance from the things of God. Ezra's wholehearted commitment to God infects everybody and they're crying out to God and want to know how they can address this problem that has arisen. Let's separate, says Shechaniah, from these pagan women. Ezra makes them promise. Says, okay, you, are you serious? Yes? Okay. Let's promise, let's take an oath that this is going to happen. Three days later, 
The returned exiles are in Jerusalem. It's a solemn moment. It would have taken place around December. It's cold outside. It's raining. And so they're trembling because of the rain and the cold, but also because of Ezra's indictment. Verse 10, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. What should we do? Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. It's not enough to simply confess and feel bad about your sins. That's important. It's necessary. There also needs to be a turning away from a life of rebellion. And sometimes that turning away is hard. It's a kind of death when we turn from the things that we cherish back to God. And certainly it must have been that way for these people. For these men who had come to love their pagan wives and their children. Now they were being called upon for the sake of protecting Israel's holiness and purity to sever those bonds of affection, to harden their heart against their wife and children and shut the door to those relationships so as to be faithful to the Lord. It must have been excruciating. And yet nothing less than that was called for. That's a, and that's exactly what God calls us to do as well. Not simply to feel bad about what we've done, but to turn from our wickedness, even those Wicked things in our lives that we have come to delight in. God tells us to turn away from all of those things. But on the other side of that painful repentance, we should note, is greater conformity to the image of Jesus Christ uh, and a deeper reflection of God's character. I think C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in uh, his book, The Great Divorce. Little book, and the premise of the book is this. The residents of hell are given the opportunity to go on vacation to sort of the periphery of heaven. And so they come up, and they're actually given the opportunity to stay in heaven, but most of them choose not to. And the reason they choose not to is because to stay in heaven, they have to give up one cherished thing that they value above God. And they are not willing to give up that thing. And so many of them go back to hell. Uh, there's one character, specifically, who, a man who has a red lizard on his shoulder. Its tail is constantly twitching, and it's constantly whispering dirty thoughts to the man. The lizard represents lust. And the man both hates and loves the lizard, is drawn to it, and is sick of it. And then a burning angel of the Lord comes to that man with a red lizard, and he says... Are you tired of that? He says, yeah. Okay, give it to me and I'll kill it. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, surely there's some other way. There are some half measures here that it, it don't need to be quite that dramatic. It's not as dire as all that. He says, no, there's no other way. If you want, I'll take the lizard and I'll kill it. Yeah, but if you kill it, you'll kill me. It's going to be excruciating to get this lizard off my shoulder. There's no other way. Do you want to be rid of the lizard? In a moment of great anguish, the man finally says, yeah. And so the, the burning angel draws near, and it's agonizing for the man. And here's what ensues. The next moment, the ghost, the man, gave a scream of agony such, I, such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, 
and then flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw, unmistakably solid and growing every moment solider, the upper arm and shoulder of a man. Then, brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, not much smaller than an angel. Notice what happens to the man on the other side of his agony. On the other side of giving up his lust, getting rid of that which he had cherished for a long time, he becomes fully human. He's a man in all, of his in all the fullness of uh, his glory as a man. He is what God had intended for him to be. And we have to understand that that's true of us as well. When we turn from the evil in our lives, even the evil that we are reluctant to give up, on the other side of that death, there is a resurrection. There is an increasing conformity to the image of Jesus. There is glory. That's what awaits on the other side of letting go of the things that uh, displease God. And that provides for us, I think, a powerful spur to turn from evil and submit ourselves to God. May God help every single one of us to let go of cherished sin and submit ourselves to his will. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are indebted to your grace, recipients of your mercies, and we ask that we would not exhibit the same hard-hearted contempt for your goodness that the Israelites did. We ask that we would be softened by your goodness and live for you. Amen.